Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. With me today is our producer and friend, usual guest, Hugo Lindgren. It is Labor Day, um, and we'll be putting this out tomorrow, Tuesday, September 7th, I believe, which is Rosh Hashanah. So uh, happy new year to all of you fellow members of the tribe. And Hugo, how's it going? It's going pretty well. I I, I think we should warn... um listeners that we're doing a little bit of an experiment you might have noticed from the tone of Bradley's voice that he's are, are there people in the next room how close are people sleeping to you we're, we're pretty pretty close we're, we're, we're back in the city so uh, a little tighter quarters uh, so Harper Abby and Lyle are all still asleep so I'm, I'm trying to uh, not wake anybody up so it's uh it's it's about 6 30 in the morning and, and Bradley you, you've been up for for an hour more than an hour uh, I got up around five or so, which is kind of usual. Read, made some coffee. I read the Washington Post. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the New York Daily News, saving the New York Post for, for Lyle when he wakes up, uh, prep for this uh, interview a little bit, and then we'll go about my day. How about you? Um, I, I just got up. I took a swim. I'm I'm not in the city because um, I wanted to, to be sharp for uh, for our conversation. I, I um, We're going to talk about a couple of California uh, items today. And I'm curious, especially uh, the, the, the trial of Elizabeth Holmes is getting underway, which is everybody's favorite story, the, the sort of fraud related to her, to her company, Theranos. Um, I guess I want to start by asking you about that, Bradley. Wh- where are you on the sort of Elizabeth Holmes obsession scale? Um, is this a story that you you followed? Uh, I mean, a little bit because I, I you know, I, I work in the industry. Um, I read Bad Blood, loved it. In fact, if listeners want, you can go back through the archives and there's an episode with John Carreyu uh, when he wrote the book. Have did not watch. Has the movie already come out or is it still being produced? No, I don't. I don't. I think there's a. I, it's funny. I haven't seen a, a movie. I've seen at least one documentary, but I think there's. It said there's a mini series. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen that. But yeah, look, it's it's interesting for multiple reasons. It's interesting for the salaciousness of it. Um, which we all enjoy. It's interesting because of all the big names. I was looking at the list of potential witnesses, and it was like, you know, Jim Mattis, Bill Frist, Henry Kissinger, like all of these really old white Henry people. Kissinger is on the list of witnesses. I thought so, maybe not. Uh, but it was like it was a lot. It wasn't Henry Kissinger actually. Isn't he dead? Henry Kissinger's not dead. He's still alive. I, I think he's yes, he's still alive. Well, maybe he will testify then. Um, so, but anyway, it was it was oh maybe it was George Schultz, but there was like a big big list of people. So a lot, lot of lot of boldface names who could potentially uh, testify in the trial. But but ultimately, I think at least for those of us inside of the venture world and in tech, there are a few pertinent questions. Um, that I think are relevant. So the, the the first is not so much is what Elizabeth Holmes did common because it's not right. It, it's obviously an incredibly extreme example, but it does make you curious as to as uh, investors where we're looking to make ten times our money and do it in a reasonably short period of time, um, are we creating expectations and pressure for founders that they can't reasonably meet, and that pushes some of them to start to hedge and, and skew numbers and things like that. That's number one. Number two, uh, for female founders, uh, what does this mean? Is this, Does Elizabeth Holmes just get seen as an anomaly or is this yet another thing used against female founders to justify not investing in their companies? Uh, third, I think anything in the blood space uh, has, has a really significant hill to climb. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a blood-related startup where my first thought wasn't Theranos. 
and that made me pretty unlikely to uh, to invest. So I, and to me, those are the pertinent questions within the world of tech and venture capital. And what um, what do you make of the defense strategy, such as we know of it? Obviously, it's been previewed a little bit. Um, is that I mean, you're, you're a lawyer or trained as a lawyer anyway. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's smart. You know, um, she's going to claim, according to what we've read, that she was subject to emotional, physical and mental abuse by Sonny Balwini, who uh, was her boyfriend at the time, was, I think, the CEO of Theranos, has also been indicted and will be tried separately from Holmes I think, later this year or early next year. And sure, if, if first of all, that may all be true. Second, uh, if you can put the blame on kind of an older man who is not in the room uh, and is clearly a pretty bad person from all accounts, <laughs> maybe that will be effective. Uh, and I don't know... Uh, whether uh, that's true or not. And if it is true, I don't know if that removes her culpability completely. It seems to me that it does not. Um, or if it means that instead of facing 20 years in jail, she faces four years in jail or six years in jail. I don't really know, but but it seems like their best shot at, at either reducing the sentence or winning this thing. So the, the last week they were doing jury selection and it, it seemed a little funny to me that, you know, they they are obviously looking for people who, who have never heard of Theranos or Elizabeth Holmes. And I was thinking like, wow, so that means people who really don't follow the news at all, or if they do, they don't remember any of it, right? So yeah. Are, are those our best citizens, people who, who who literally do not like- They're probably not regular voters, right? Um, so maybe not from that perspective would be the best citizens given this podcast views on, on voting and mobile voting. But yeah, it always amazes me when someone really high profile is indicted and they actually try to find a jury that's never heard of them, and they can, right? Now, there are times where someone is so famous that they can't, um, and they just have to sort of accept the words of the jurors who they believe can remain the most impartial. Um, but in this case, look, it's a big story if you follow the news. It's a big story if you're in the tech world. It's probably a big story in the medical world. But, you know, people are busy living their lives, right? Everyone's got different interests and, and thoughts that they're, you know, things that they want to focus on. And people have jobs and kids and all kinds of stuff they have to do. So the fact that someone might not have heard of a fraudulent tech founder, like, I think that's probably fine. They, they've got those extra couple hours of their life that we'll never get back. <laughs> you had uh, you had close encounters with a with a with a famous liar, former uh, Illinois governor, Rod Blagojevich. Um do you have any tips for 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 spotting um, uh, for spotting a congenital liar before you know the cuffs are on them? Well, I mean, I, th I think what's interesting is that at one point I had read that Holmes was considering pleading insanity, and I had always thought that if Blagojevich had pled insanity, he would have had a serious shot at actually being treated that way, simply because um, he he couldn't tell to a certain extent right and wrong, reality and fantasy all of these things kind of merged in his head in a way that always made me think this guy is not all there. Um, and that doesn't exculpate him. That's not a word. What's the word? That doesn't remove him from culpability from what he, uh, what he did and what he was convicted of, but it, it does change the way that it's viewed. Legally. Exonerate. Was exonerate the word you were looking exonerate. for? Exonerate. Yeah, it doesn't exonerate him. Right. So, yeah, but, but at the same time, I, I think if, if you were working for Elizabeth Holmes or what I learned in working for Blagojevich is, one, you know, it, you kind of have to be prepared for battle on every call. I mean, the hardest thing working for Rod is that it was exhausting because 
you know, he was never in the office, but Mary Stewart, who was his uh, assistant, would call you and say, call, call Rod at home, or it was almost always at home because he never really went anywhere else. And you would. And the call could be like a friendly check-in. It could be like, hey, did you watch the Cubs game last night? Or it could be an hour and a half ranting conspiracy theory about how everyone's out to get him and you're not protecting him enough. And right. the challenge is one. And you weren't protecting him enough, were you? Well, uh, I was running as government for him. And, and I think if you ask observers who were there at the time, it ran fairly smoothly in the four years that I was deputy governor. But um, no, I was not looking out to keep him out of jail because my view is you just shouldn't be doing those things in the first place. But uh, also, whenever it was a crazy call and he had a request that to me was stupid, whether it was legal or illegal, I said no. And then that led to a really big fight. And we had a very contentious relationship uh, all four years that I was there. Uh, so um, it, it does mean that if you if you find yourself working for someone like that, the best thing to do is just to get out if you can. But like I couldn't, for example, because I felt like I had taken on this responsibility of running the state and, and saw the need to kind of see it through through the term, which I did. Um, but if, so if you can't get out, even if it's easier just to nod your head and smile and then go about your day doing whatever it is what you were doing, um, that's where you start to get into trouble. That's where you become parts of conspiracies. It's where you learn things that if you don't object to them, uh, might give you some sort of criminal liability. So the, the best advice I can give to anyone in that situation is if you're working for someone who is crazy and you can't quit, as unpleasant as it is, you got to step up and be willing to do battle on every single call and every single meeting uh, for whatever you think is both right and legal and ethical. Because if you don't, it's not just a question of you failing your own self. It's a question of you potentially facing your own legal challenges. You know, it, it obviously seems very unlikely that there's a lot of cases of fraud on the scale of Theranos kind of lurking around out there that we don't know about. But um, it does, on the other hand, it, it's hard to imagine, given the kind of pressure on founders, uh, the, the huge stakes involved, um, that the kind of fudging of numbers, you know, there, there's a company I'd never heard of them before called Headspin that got in some trouble this week. And basically, they were just booking as customers, like people who'd like merely inquired about their their company and or had been a former customer, you know, they were just sort of lumping everybody into like, look at all these customers we have, and look at all this revenue. And that seems, um, again, that might have been a little extreme for for what, you know, most startups would do. But but that kind of like, sort of, uh, in on the one hand, it's just sort of optimistic, right? You're sort of saying like, hey, like things are going great. We're trying to create this sort of positive momentum that attracts other customers and and other investors. That seems to me the kind of thing that could be pretty widespread. Yeah. Um, so on, I was thinking about that. So on one hand, I'm relatively new to the venture world. We started investing out of Fund One in October of 2016. We are now investing out of our third fund, but it's still only been a little over five years. I think we've made 42 total investments so far out of the three funds. Um, I haven't seen, so on one hand, the, the good news is I haven't seen anything, right? And we're, we don't have that many board seats because uh, up until now, we haven't had the kind of financial capacity to, to lead rounds of financing, which is what gets you board seats. But I think Jordan's on five or six. I'm on a couple. So we're starting to see it. And so far, I haven't run into that or seen that. Maybe that's because hopefully we're picking good founders on the front end. But it would seem to me that if if we're successful enough that we have ultimately 10, 15 funds over time, there's got to be an example. We're going to invest in some founder 
um, who is unethical and lies or cheats about numbers and growth and, that, and stuff like that to try to drive up the valuation. So um, ha- haven't seen it yet, but I think it's really important uh, to be mindful of it because I, I understand the pressure that founders are under. Um, I understand the pressure that we as investors are under to produce the kind of returns that our LPs are looking for. Um, but with all of that said, you know, there is a point where uh, being competitive and is different than being unethical or, or behaving in a way that's illegal. Um, and you've got to have that kind of compass, uh, both for your morality, but also just for your own survival. You mentioned that other, uh, you know, companies involved in sort of blood related products and processes have a, you know, probably a little bit of an extra burden in, in getting their, um, getting their story across and getting funding um, because of this. I'm curious, though, one of the things about Theranos that always um, struck me was that, you know, for, for, for all its, you know, the incredible amount of um, publicity and, and the cult of personality around Elizabeth Holmes, it felt like it was solving a pretty small problem. You know, um, like uh, our. I, don't know. I mean, I guess. I guess. Well, l- l- let me let me refute that a little bit. When okay. you look at all of the excuses for why people won't get vaccinated, right. um, fear of needles is one of the things that gets listed. Right now, whether people are using that as an excuse, I don't know. But there is some percentage of the population that is genuinely really terrified of needles. Um, and if that is deterring them from being vaccinated or getting the medical care that they need, and this could solve that problem, you know, that's a big deal, right? So, you know, whether it was as big as she was making it out to be, no, pro- probably not. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't think it's illegitimate, uh, to, or I don't think it would be accurate to say that that no one is afraid of needles and that doesn't deter some people from getting that. Oh, no, I, I agree with that. Although you still have to get your finger pricked. I mean, it's not like you don't, yeah, but it's, it's um, look, and obviously who, you know, it, but we've all had finger pricks at the doctor and we've all had big needles stuck into us. Um, it's, it's different. All right. All right. I see that you're on the, on the pro, uh, needle phobia, um, side of the thing. So. I, you know, I, I don't particularly have a needle. Someone told me I was on the call the other day with, uh, with an LP and he was telling me the story about, he was like a, he's a Hollywood manager and producer and how he's trying to deal with making sure that everyone on set has all of their proper vaccinations and everything else. And obviously keeps running into people who are not vaccinated. And one guy said to him, I'm terrified of needles. And he looked at the guy and he was covered head to toe in tattoos. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Right. And he's like, that, that scares me. Freaking tattoos. Yeah. So, you know, clear, clearly that guy was lying, but, um, do you remember those 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 uh, TV commercials when we were kids? You know where people be shaving and they'd be like, "Gotcha," you know, and it looked it looked like literally like your morning shave was this like landmine of like of of horrible cuts and and life threatening, you know, bleeding and all this. And and uh, I think of that a little bit when I think of Theranos. I think like, is that what they were trying to pretend that everybody's just like like living in fear of getting a, getting like a, like a blood test, but I, I don't, I don't remember the commercials, but I, I will say, you well, you're old. If you go, you're older than me. Don't forget. Oh, that. I know, it's We're it's different true. generations. Um, <laughs> but I would say one in every dozen times I shave, it does feel like that. Where like usually it's fine. And then sometimes I just come out totally bloody and like, just a mess. <laughs> okay, let's not talk about that. Ew. <laughs> um, Let's uh, let's let's uh, staying in the state of California. Um, let's let's talk about Gavin Newsom. So I want to do the same 
general approach. I, you know, when we talked about Elizabeth Holmes, just want to back up for a second. Gavin Newsom, as a politician, you know, before this recent recall issue, what were your thoughts on him? Did, was he someone you thought was kind of a promising national candidate? Did you have you ever donated to him, or 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 you know, where's where's I haven't, your... haven't met him, haven't donated. Um, not not sure that. Uh, he's uh, or even was a leading presidential contender, in part because if you just think about where we are at the moment, you know, if Biden's not the nominee in 24, it would seem very hard for Newsom as the sitting governor of California to then primary the sitting vice president who's from his state. Right. Right. That seems unlikely. So now you're 2028. And the way the world works these days, things move so fast that to try to project ahead seven years to another election to me is is pointless. Um, so I, I, he's not a national contender anytime soon, uh, from, from what I can tell. And what about your own view of him then? Just just as a as a you know a guy in a powerful position. No, good, um, good and bad. There are specific things that we have worked with him on uh, that are good. And I think the thing that obviously I'm most passionate about is in the most recent California budget. Um, he included $650 million for universal school breakfast and lunch. Um, that is the biggest expansion that I'm aware of ever uh, of universal school meals. And so we were incredibly happy uh, to see that happen and, and to be part of that that effort. And he was instrumental in that? I mean, it's his budget. You know, I don't think he was like running around the state barnstorming on this one issue. Um, and look, they, they received a tremendous amount of federal money. So they're all of a sudden cities and states are finding them themselves in an unusual position of being extra flush to the money they had spent because, you know, God forbid you ever save any of it. Um, but in this case, I mean, I, I can't think of anything much better than um, universal breakfast and lunch. How, how, did, uh, how did Gavin Newsom end up in so much trouble? Like what happened to him? So, I mean, I think it's a few things. One is, look, we, we live in a society of dissatisfaction because we have these huge problems that we never really are seen able to solve. And I could go into a whole rant on mobile voting if you want right now. Um, and as a result, the voters sort of get frustrated and just kind of shift back and forth uh, from one party to another on the, on the federal level and from one politician to another uh, on the local level. And every politician promises to be different and they're the ones that will solve all of the problems. And even ones who were different, like Barack Obama was certainly different, you know, for all of his odiousness, Donald Trump was certainly different. They didn't really have that much success either because the system is is so screwed up and so dysfunctional. And so by definition, we're almost always frustrated with our elected officials because they're promising to solve problems they can't actually solve. And we're expecting them to solve problems that they can't actually solve. So Newsom, uh, one, is just subject to that. And those are just the laws of political reality in 2021. Two... California has a recall provision. Um, so just like we're seeing now that like you could imagine every president uh, being impeached going by the House going forward if they're of a different party because the, the House Republicans are now calling for Biden's impeachment over Afghanistan. Um, any state that has a recall provision, you know, if, when, when you when you give a hammer, uh, when you give a handyman a hammer, you know, he's looking for a nail. Uh, there's, that's a, there's a much better way to say that phrase than I just did. This is the downside of 30. I, I now couldn't couldn't say exculpate. I still can't even say the word, or I, I don't even remember what. Exculpate. You just have to not try to say that word. Yeah, and I can't remember the the cliche about hammers and nails. But um, <laughs> but but nonetheless, it recalls there, and so therefore it's always hanging around. And you have a lot of 
wealthy and smart people in California who have different points of view and, and are used to being able to direct their own energies and talents to achieve societal outcomes. And people did that here to to get the recall on the ballot. So um, the fact that this all happened is, to me is not it's not totally shocking. And look, do, if you look at the last two polls and the most recent one was from the Public Policy Institute of California or something like that that came out on Thursday and it said 58 percent of people oppose recall, he should be fine. Right. So I, I think the odds are on September 15th or whenever he's, he's still governor. Um, but with that said, I, I, what I'm curious about is him and his team kind of misreading the political tea leaves and making a mistake that I think you see a lot of politicians uh, in the Democratic Party uh, making right now across the country, which is if you look at the inside game of politics. So Twitter, MSNBC, advocacy groups, all that kind of stuff. It feels like all the power, all the energy, all the enthusiasm is on the far left. And when you veer from the traditional talking points of the far left, you get hit so hard on TV and online um, that it really is a huge deterrent uh, to crossing them in any way. And I think what Newsom's team might have done, I'll give you a couple of examples, is they kind of confused the inside game for the outside game. And, And they took the world of Twitter and the world of cable TV and decided that, that was reflective of the voters uh, as a whole. And that's just not true, right? And so, you know, your job as a politician or as a political consultant is to be able to figure out who the voters are that are going to participate in your next election that matter and how to keep them on your side. And, and I think Newsom and his team might have misread that. So, so two examples, one very tech-oriented, one not. So the very tech-oriented one we've talked about in this podcast a lot worker classification and the laws around whether sharing economy workers should be independent contractors or full-time employees. California passed a bill called AB5 in 2019. It just reclassified every single sharing economy worker, every Uber driver, every DoorDash delivery person, every everyone pretty much um, as a full-time employee. And, you know, in Sacramento was, this is what the left wants. This is what labor wants. um, And we will do it no matter what, because of course, that's how things should be. We have to keep them happy. Uber, Lyft, others then ran something called Prop 22, a big campaign uh, that they put on the ballot in 2020 to overturn AB5. It passed overwhelmingly. And when it passed overwhelmingly, I think Team Newsom should have asked themselves, okay, we instinctually did something that to us seemed like a no-brainer because in the world of Sacramento politics, it made complete sense. And yet the voters overturned it uh, by almost a 60-40 margin. Maybe we're out of sync and maybe what we're seeing on Twitter all day is not reflective of reality. Um, the second one, I think, of course is- they also overturned it, should be said, after a massive amount of spending by the, uh, you know, by the, the gig economy. You know, the other side spent tens of millions of dollars, I believe, also. So it was, it was no, no challenge by either side in getting their message out. And the, the more, to me, even salient example are the homeless and quality of life crises that are happening right now in San Francisco and Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, and I was there about a month ago, there are literally 10 cities throughout downtown LA. I haven't been to San Francisco since pre-COVID, but even pre-COVID, you saw things like human excrement uh, on sidewalks and and things things that were just, even as a New Yorker, I was shocked by. uh, If you're kind of walking up Market Street. So so given that, you had these crises, and I took a look at articles um, about Newsom, what he would say about these crises. And what was interesting to me from the research that I did, and, and, and it, obviously you, you can be more comprehensive than I was, but 
it seemed like all of his language up until recently was always from the perspective of the homeless, of the mentally ill, of the substance abuser, and how are we compassionate for them? How are we taking care of them? How do we spend taxpayer money to help them? Um, and, and I think one of the reasons that he's in this situation, even though he'll probably kind of survive it, is your average resident of San Francisco or Los Angeles is like, screw that. I pay huge taxes to live here. I've got kids. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to have to see someone pooping uh, on the street or I don't want to have to feel unsafe to be able to go into the downtown of my own city. Um, and it felt like, I'm sure to them, nobody was looking at it from their perspective. Everyone, because they were so worried about being criticized by, by the left, um, only looked at it from the perspective of the people who were – uh, in that situation and not people who were affected by that situation. And what's interesting to me was his language started to change in around August when the polling was at its sort of weakest for him, where all of a sudden they realized, oh, uh, it's not about what people say about us on Twitter or what Rachel Maddow may criticize us for or not on MSNBC. It's about what these actual voters who are going to participate in the recall election think. And most of them are incredibly frustrated. And look, the governor of California actually doesn't really have that much to do with local quality of life issues in San Francisco or L.A., but voters don't make those distinctions. They just say things look terrible. This, this guy's not doing anything about it. Let's change it. And look, during the mayoral campaign in New York City this year, um, Yang, whose campaign we ran, Andrew Yang, did at one of the debates talk about um, mentally ill and homeless from the perspective of his wife uh, who had been accosted and his neighbors and just regular New Yorkers who were kind of afraid of the way that their neighborhood had changed. And he was absolutely excoriated for it. You know, how dare you not look at this only from the, from the perspective of the people who are mentally ill and homeless. You're a monster um, and got roasted on Twitter for a couple of days over it um, when all he was trying to do was say for the people who live here and pay taxes here, they ought to have the right to walk down the street and not feel threatened. So I, I think that to me, the, the, the lesson here for both Newsom and for other Democratic politicians in this country is you got to separate, you know, fantasy world from reality world. And the inside game of politics may matter a lot if you're trying to pass a bill in your state legislature or your city hall. And look, everyone in politics, by almost by definition, is insecure and wants affirmation and wants validation and retweets and likes and praise from pundits is sort of their favorite way of getting it. So all of their sort of personal incentives are inclined towards, you know, favoring the inside game over the outside game. And that's all fine until you lose an election. And, and, and while Newsom's not probably going to lose this one, the fact that this is even on the ballot in and of itself shows, you know, how badly he kind of failed to separate the real world of the electorate from the fantasy world of inside politics. I think it's a lesson that other politicians have to take going forward. So on the larger theme of California, uh, with some of the quality of life issues we've you've mentioned, um, the the kind of climate stuff there seems particularly severe with the, yeah, the wildfires. wildfires. Sure. Do you buy into this sort of idea that like California is like in trouble or there's like some kind of like like mass exodus that's about to happen? Or is this is this kind of media hype? Or do you think people really are kind of starting to think like, well, hey, with climate the way it is, I need to move to a place where, you know, the 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 national forest near me isn't going to like, you know, burst into flames, you know, once every couple of years. Right. Look, California is one of the most fascinating places in the United States and the world because it seems to encapsulate 
all of the good and all of the bad of this country um, in one place at the same exact time, right? That's why those Joan Didion essays uh, from the 1960s and 70s about California still kind of hold true in my mind today, um, because even though California has changed- you personally like those essays, those sort of mythologizing about California, the Santana winds? Yeah, I I read a few of them, um, Slotch and George Bethlehem and a few others uh, over the summer, and I I thought they were good. I didn't read the whole, Harper had, I think, read the whole book of it. I I didn't read the whole book of it. Right. But yeah, I thought that that they still captured the essential weirdness of California, which I find myself kind of drawn to um, in a lot of ways. So on one hand, no, it's something like the fourth biggest economy in the world or something like that, or seventh. Um, It is- like bigger than India or maybe- Yeah, like, so it's, it's huge. Um, they have so many people, people are still coming in constantly. It, it, you know, even if they lost a little population in the last census overall, um, I think it would be very early to announce the death of California. So on one hand, no, I don't think so. On the other hand, I have a friend, I won't name him, but who lived in Malibu was a hedge fund, actually a private equity manager. And because of quality of life and because of taxes, uh, moved. Now he moved to Miami, so clearly wasn't a climate change decision. Um, but nonetheless, you know, you, you could say good riddance cause you know, Hey, we're on the far left and we hate private equity, but he paid a lot of taxes. Right. And that's the same problem that New York faces, which is if enough people make that decision, if, you know, Elon Musk left, you know, Dropbox left, you know, all these companies are leaving California for Texas or Florida or wherever else, um, you get to a point where, if your revenue can't meet your needs and California's needs are really severe and really significant, you get into a downward cycle where the government is not able to provide the basic services to keep a quality of life. Uh, people feel, regular people start to feel more and more uncomfortable and threatened because it's dirtier and more dangerous. More and more of them leave if they can. And, you know, that's how cities like Detroit and Baltimore and Newark, you know, ultimately fell apart. The, the jobs left and then, and then people left with it. So, um, I do think there's risk here, and I think this gets back to the point uh, we were making earlier, which is, you know, one of the theories that I've noticed by sort of the, the progressive community is there is no risk to overtaxing, or overregulating, or overexcoriating um, the wealthy because you know they'll they have no choice; they'll they'll stay here and they'll just pay whatever we tell them to pay. You know, the tax rate is eighty percent, um, and at least for as long as the United States is you know, a federalist system and there's each state has the power to determine its own state taxes. That's not really true. So I, I do think that, that Sacramento is playing with fire, um, literally and figuratively in this case, and um, not that different than Albany and other places. And, and I think they may suffer. For it. You mentioned Austin um, uh, this week uh, or last week, the the uh, the new abortion ban in, in Texas kind of, I would say, changed the calculus of how much, how great it is to be, you know, a blue city in a red state. Yes. Um, t- tell me, you, you, as as listeners know, your your wife's family is from 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 Austin. You spent a lot of time there. Uh, what kind of effect do you think that has on the on the? I mean, it, it has lots of effects on Texas residents generally, but as a political thing for for uh, left leaning or even moderate people in in Texas, what does this do to to uh, you know, to, to, to politics in, in, in the state. Yeah. So, I mean, there's one answer is from two perspectives. One is sort of, do, do we think people will actually start to leave Texas because of it? And then two, what does it mean politically? So on the first, you know, Harper and I were talking about this over the weekend. 
And I kind of said, like, you know, maybe there's a world where your sister and your mom decide, screw this, and everyone ends up in, in Manhattan, and that that's fine. Um, now, in reality, if you think about all the times where you heard, like, well, if Bush gets reelected, I'm moving to Canada, and no one ever fucking does, right? So, like, there's, there's a lot of talk about people moving places for political reasons, and I think in reality, it doesn't happen that often. And also... Austin's a, a great city, and it's, it's in many ways just getting better and better and better um, because uh, it, it keeps growing in ways that are successful. So there's a lot of reasons to not want to leave Austin um, if you live there. But between laws that allow people to, to carry a concealed weapon pretty much anywhere, anytime, uh, laws that basically outlaw abortion uh, and everything else, you do see a world of people who are at least extremely mobile and privileged could say enough uh, I'm moving. And the question becomes, where do you move to, right? You could move to New York and California, but then all of a sudden you're back in a high tax, high regulation environment. You're not going to like in bad weather in New York, at least you're not going to like that either. So whether there is a place that uh, would, would satisfy everything for liberals, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I do think that there probably won't be a mass exodus, but the, the combination of the abortion law and the gun law it does for the first time to me start to feel like it, it, it may be something that pushes some people over the top. Well, I mean, aspects of the law, I mean, the whole law is 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 frightening and 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 uh, uh, also really depressing. But but the the you know, among the the pieces of it are, are the uh, I guess private citizens can sue anybody who is involved in aiding someone getting an abortion yeah, it was it was really i think from what i read less about creating an enforcement system and more around circumventing legal vulnerability that could have been struck down by the courts i mean e even the strong opponents of the bill which i would say i'm one i assume you are too um concede that it's very legally clever right so they basically came up with a workaround so if you look at that 6-3 decision i'm sorry the 5-4 decision by the supreme court um, I, I don't agree with it, but at the same time, um, the five who voted for it, you know, in the very narrow legal question of whether or not uh, there's jurisdiction here, they might have been right about that. Now, when the broader case comes up, hopefully we'll see a different outcome. But um, yeah, they were really smart in how they did it. And this is, you know, a, a, a probably another warning for, for progressives, which is, you know, people who are different than you are not stupid. Just because they didn't go to Yale or because they don't live in, on the coast or because they haven't spent a lot of time abroad doesn't mean they're dumb. And they, as you see here in Texas, um, a very successful campaign was run over a period of time to craft this law, elect people who would pass this law, and then on the federal level, appoint judges who would uphold it. And so, you know, it's very easy to sit here and be smug and self-righteous and morally and intellectually superior but then all of a sudden they start banning abortion in Texas after six weeks. And, you know, how superior are you? So we should we should wrap up here. But but uh, you did have a movie review you wanted to add just to yeah. give a little a little lightness to the to a pretty heavy conversation. <laughs> um, Shang-Chi, uh, The Legend of the Ten Rings is the newest Marvel movie, came out on Friday. All four of us saw it uh, yesterday. And it was great. Uh, I think the, we the, did all four. We're all four in agreement. So, so yeah, everybody loved it. Harper and Abby were also. And I, I'm sure you and Lyle were into it. Everybody was there. Everyone loved it. We also saw it in Union Square in one of those 4D theaters, and the seats were like literally moving and rocking the entire time. Which and you like that? You like it when the seats move? I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it fit the movie. Right now, if I were trying right. to nap, I think I would have found it pretty annoying. 
Uh, and oftentimes I will go to a movie with basically it's a combination of childcare plus napping opportunity. Um, <laughs> but, but this one, this one I wanted to see. So no, I, I did kind of enjoy, it. I turned off the thing that sprays water at you because that was pretty unpleasant after the first time. Wait, so just say one good thing about the movie. Like, what did it do well? That, that... What it did was it was it's, it had a lot of the good elements of a Marvel movie in that the acting was good. The scenery was spectacular. The fighting scenes were really good. The dialogue was punchy. Um, and it was also and I'm not a huge martial arts fan, but it was also like a really good martial arts movie. Right. With like just in, incredibly well done and exciting action. And so, you know, you put together good likable actors an interesting story uh a lot of action and it it really worked if if you like marvel movies and it's it's not it's only kind of tangentially part of the mcu so they mention iron man or thanos or other things at, at various points in the movie um but it's not as interconnected as like one of the you know avenger movies or something like that but nonetheless uh yeah we we loved it highly recommend it and you wore masks in the movie theater yes yeah did everybody was everyone in a mask Pretty much, again, this was uh, Manhattan. And also they checked vaccination when you came in. Um, not only did they check it, so we showed them all our, our cards or photos of the cards, but they then checked their ID, um, which is the most rigorous I've ever seen anywhere. And Abby, you know, she's 15, doesn't really carry ID. And so we had her card and they let us in. But even that was like, next time, make sure you bring something. So in a way that was encouraging because even though we still wore our masks, it felt like, uh, hopefully the odds of people there being infected were a little lower. All right, brother. we got a lot of other stuff to talk about. We'll save for next week. And I uh, uh, hope you have a, a lovely holiday. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, be, we'll be back in a week. Cool. See you then. Thanks.